Formula One and indeed all of motorsport is all about the relationship between driving and engineering and that's what we're going to talk about today on the latest edition of the Gary Anderson F1 show. Gary of course has race engineered extensively as well as being a technical director in F1 sometimes at the same time so knows exactly what the team needs from a driver. We'll also get Gary to decide on which of today's drivers will be the best to work with. Uh, I'm Ed Straw and as always I'm joined by the star of the show Uh, Gary, we'll start off with the opening question straight away. This one comes from Robin Fisher, who says, I'm keen to hear about the nearly Jordan drivers. Was the John Watson shakedown just for publicity? Was Nigel Mansell ever an option in 96? And are there any any other drivers you remember as as potentials uh, that that never were? Well, there was lots of nearly nearly Jordan drivers, I think, many, many times. You know, Eddie was pretty good at getting somebody in and maybe giving them a little bit of a test and getting a few bob out of them to just keep the wheels turning, which was critically important but as far as what he was concerned you know he, he was Irish um it was a good thing to do um obviously Eddie's from the south I'm from the north John's from the north uh we have John Boy Walton who was the chief mechanic and he was from the south so it was a fairly there's a fairly good Irish uh, contingent there Bosco Quinn was actually one of the guys from the south who worked with Eddie for many many years before it and unfortunately he he met in a car accident and was uh, was killed but um it was one of those situations where John John doubted us, really, building a Formula 1 car. I remember speaking to him at the British Grand Prix in 1990 and saying, you know, what do you guys know about building a Formula 1 car? You know, it just looked like, you know, you shouldn't be doing this. This is a way above your your pay scale. Is this John Watson offering an unsolicited opinion on something? Uh, well, yeah, yeah. My old <laughs> mate, John Watson. I mean, you know, he was, interestingly, John was one of the first guys I worked with in England in 1972, actually, early 73, who did a Formula 2 race at I think it was Mallory Park or something. But, um, so I knew John from Ireland, really, a long time ago. And he sort of doubted. And I, I sort of said to John what I was intending to, you know, what we are trying to do with the car, basically, because, you know, we, we didn't know Formula 1 by any means, but we've been involved with Formula 3000 um, fairly you know, well, and we won the championship in 1988 with Roberto Moreno, and I'd worked at Reynard in 1989, so I designed a 3000 car, and, you know, yes, they're different, they're vastly different, but at the end of the day, the, it's a car with four wheels on it, you know, and, a, and four tyres that sit on the ground, so not that much difference, a bit more power, a bit more everything, but still. So um, I said to Watty about what we are trying to build with the car, and, you know, give the driver confidence in the rear end of the car, and so on and so forth, um, and, uh Typical John, oh, what do you know about it? You know, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, whenever it came to running the car, we thought, you know, what? Well, let's give Watty a bit of a wheel around. And, and uh, you know, get, it's a good advertising thing. He's Irish. And we did that. And to be honest, it was quite interesting because one of his first comments was, you know, whenever I spoke to you at the British Grand Prix and you told me what you were going to build, I said, this car just feels like that. It's got a lot of confidence in the rear end of the car. It's very good under braking, um, so on and so forth. So, yes, he was a, a, a bit of a PR gimmick. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, it was of value to us and a little bit of feedback he gave us was of value to us as well. So we did a couple of quick tests with him. He'd have been mid forties at the time. So yeah, the F1 career was long, long since over, but high quality, high quality driver, John Watson. Yeah, no, high quality driver, really good guy. And I worked with McLaren as well, you know, so we had a reasonable background, uh, together. Um, and he did a couple of tests and said the first test, we had a, a bit of a problem with wheel bearing, we had to change the front wheel bearings, um, and he came and tested it again after that. So, yeah, he he he, you know, he did he did do a good job. And I'd say that what he did was he did a test. He didn't just drive it round. You know, he did actually go and give the car a bit of a push, which is always good for us. Um, moving on to Nigel in '96, uh, um, you know, 
yes, there was a there was a chance that Nigel might have wanted to recover from his his McLaren um, episode, I suppose you might call it. Uh, and we went to Barcelona uh, with with Ralph Schumacher as well, and um, Nigel was sort of first out and going around quite happily. And you know, he did work down the times. He got to a lap time that was actually quicker than than Ralph at that point in time. And then the next next thing is he goes past the pits and does his you know does a time and comes on the radio and says, "Oh, my hands are freezing. I'm coming in for a cup of tea." In his best Burmy accent. So he came in for a cup of tea, and, and to be honest, he never, you know, he he, he did that little bit. Um, he had to do that little bit, but then he never went faster all day long. Um, so I think that was when he decided, well, yeah, I can do it, but, I, you know, I've not really, I don't really want to be doing this against these young guys. You know, Ralph went out and pushed and pushed and pushed and, and got faster than uh, than John and, you know, and then uh, the Nigel. And um, so yeah, I think Nigel decided there and then that that was, that was quite enough, really. But I remember him coming back to the office and sitting with Eddie and me in, the, in Eddie's office. And he said to Eddie, he said, Eddie, you know, I've driven for Lotus, I've driven for Ferrari, I've driven for Williams, I've driven for McLaren. And what you guys have done for what you have here, you should be bloody proud of. That was in his best Brummie accent. Um, but, you know, he, he was good for us as well, to be honest. It was nice to get somebody on the car. Um, he was enthusiastic to prove to himself that he could he could still, you know, pedal it and get on with it, which he could do. Um, but I don't think he wanted to put the, commit, put the commitment into it either. So, but, uh, yeah, well, there was a lot, a few possibilities here and there. As you say, Felipe Massa, he was one that came, had a seat fitting for 2003. I think it was 2003. Um, but it never really happened for whatever reason. So, you know, all these things come and go and, and uh, you try to get the best you can. And say Eddie was always try, good at trying to get a few, few bob out of people here and there if he could. There was lots of people always lined up, but the ones that really got in the car were the ones that uh, were, you know, good enough, had the budget or whatever. So uh, nothing too much under the counter. Yeah, I imagine it'd be a very, very uh, long list. Well, should we get on with uh, race engineering? Before we get into the, the the sort of wider aspects, we should probably just start off with a with a basic definition of the race engineer's job and how that's evolved over the years. Well, it evolves one thing. I think change is, is a, a better way of putting it. Um, I mean, for many, many years, the start of my time in, in motorsport and, and probably right through to to the mid-90s, um, Normally, the designer and race engineer was a bit of a was a bit of a crossover. Um, you know, there wasn't the staff levels uh, involved in it. So, you even take nineteen ninety one. Um, you know, we had three people when we designed the first car: Andrew Green, myself, and, and Mark Smith. And um, when we went to the first the first race, you know, Trevor Foster, who was our team manager, would engineer one car. I would engineer the other car, and Andrew would look after the data for both cars. Data was a loose word because he didn't gather very much data in those days, but um, it just what you had on the car, you just looked at, you tried um, suspension movement, damper levels, you know, a few odds and, bo- odds and bobs to to look at, um, but nothing too dramatic. So your race engineering was, was, you know, shooting from the hip really, to be honest. It was about a driver giving you feedback and you deciding with the driver what would be the best solution to rectifying that situation you know too much understeer do you want more front wing do you want a softer front roll bar do you want a stiffer rear bar do you want you know what do you want to do with it to fix the understeer so you'd try to build up you know if the car you know if he was saying well the traction's a bit limited but i've got too much understeer then you wouldn't want to put a stiffer rear bar on it soften the front bar whatever you know so you'd make up your mind between yourselves as to 
um, what you thought would be the solution. And that's what I classify as, as race engineering. But also coming from the fact that you designed the car, you sort of had in your imprinted in your head what the car was made up of. Like, for example, in the 91 Jordan, we had a, a monoshock front end who didn't have an anti-roll bar system on it at that point in time. Um, it was basically a rigid front end. All the, all the roll was done in the tires. Um, and that was an effort to get the rear end to, to be secure under braking, turning in, get good traction, because I always say there's, you know, there's no point in having all this horsepower if you can't get the throttle open. Um, it's a waste of time. So traction was vitally important to me, and you'd live with the understeer just to give you the, the, uh, the confidence in the car. Um, so coming from the design background, you knew what you could fix and you knew what you couldn't fix, um, and you'd make those decisions to suit that. So nowadays it's very much data-driven, and I think a race engineer, although still has to be very good at what he does, is deciphering, again, through the data, with his data analysis guys, as to what's not right with the car. You know, the cars are all built and designed to, to work in a, in a little window. And the most important thing is that the race engineer makes sure the car gets into that window at a racetrack. So very little feedback from the driver these days. The driver will always say what's going on, but it's not as though you react to what he's, he's talking about. You make sure you're in, within that window. And then once you get within that window, you start to react a little bit to what the driver wants. But normally, if you're working within that window and the car isn't going quick, you're a bit lost because... Uh, that's all you've got. And then you have to go back and do something else to try and change that window, I suppose, the working window of the car. The race engineers have become very, very different over the the decades. Um, you know, when I was at McLaren in the 70s, Teddy Mayer, who owned the company, he used to engineer James' car um, with sort of background assistance from, from Gordon Coppock, who was a designer. But then Whenever I went there, I sort of got involved with Teddy a bit more, so I would be I would be the one that would be responsible for stabilising Teddy, making sure he doesn't get too excited about stuff. He knew what was going on, you know, he knew about cars, but um, he didn't have a sort of engineering background, I suppose you might call it, um, and I was able to stabilise him a little bit, but, you know, it was a very, 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 very different world. Now, we often hear about drivers who are, who are good engineering drivers. What does that mean in real terms? Um, you've got a problem, I think, is the main thing, because I think, you know, in life you can do be good at something. If you're a good racing driver, um, then be a good racing driver. But if you're a good racing driver and, and an engineer in the background, you're thinking about the wrong stuff. You know, whenever I, I was driving my own F3 cars a little bit, you know, I must admit, to getting your head confused a little bit with, with the car and the driving, um, and just uh, you know, just the nuts and bolts of it. You know, just too much thinking about the nuts and bolts. Heinz Harald Frensen, I think, was very was very good at, at uh, the engineering side of stuff, or thinking about the engineering side of stuff. But I think at the end of the day, um, it would put him in a position where he would want what he wanted because he thought about it too much. It would never just what you have to get from a driver is a driver that will drive the car at an effort level that he knows consistently. You know, if that's 98% or 99%, you have to be consistent in your driving. So your effort level and your your, your talent that you're putting into it, you know, you have to make sure you're away from that a little bit, um, away from the ultimate a little bit, just to be consistent with your testing. If the car goes faster, it should go faster because of the changes you made, not because you've tried harder. And I think if you're too involved, as a, as a racing driver, if you're too involved in engineering, you will try harder because you got something you want. Um, 
some of the drivers I work with, they love new stuff. You put it in the car, they go quicker. Half an hour later, the same problems back again, and they're back to where they were, just because they were enthusiastic for new stuff. Now, sometimes you have to decipher all that, and I think if you're a, an engineering driver, you're never going to be that 100% committed to getting the best out of what you've got. So what would constitute a good driver for an engineer? What what would they be? Where's the line to be drawn in terms of what you need from them to do your job? Good, unbiased feedback as to what the car is doing. Just about the car and its handling. You don't need to know about the oil pressure in the middle of a left-hand corner. You know, you, you, you want to know about the car handling, when the characteristics of the car change, you know, when the understeer starts. The understeer, when you first turn the steering wheel, is it mid-corner? Is it when you touch the throttle? Is it, you know, when you come off the brakes? Is it when you go on the brakes or whatever? You want good feedback from them. Um, you want to be able to go through the parameters with them that you can change. As I say, you know, you can front ride height, front wing angles, front roll bar, front springs, rear, spar- rear springs, rear roll bars. There's a many, many combinations of things that you can do to to change how a car responds. For example, you know, the, the changing the front spring to a stiffer front spring and a softer front roll bar, let's say, would you know, in the old days, this is, uh, cars are very complicated now, but in the old days, that would mean the car would be slightly more stable on entry to the corner, have a little bit more roll probably mid-corner. Um, so depending on when the understeering that started, you know, you want to fit, effect, affect it. So the driver that you can talk to about that and, and try to place in his head what you're trying to do, and then for him to go out and drive, as I say, at the pace he was driving at before, or at the effort level he was driving at before, more than pace. And if you go faster, the changes you've made are better. And if they're not, if it's not better, it's the changes you've made that are not better. And then whenever you chipped her down and you say, okay, we're going down to 10 kilograms of fuel now, it's up to you to find that extra bit. Bish bash bosh, he goes out and finds you half a second or whatever it be. Um, that's what a driver should be to me. Consistency, solid feedback, engineering understanding, so he's au fait with what you're trying to achieve at the setup changes, and um, unable to wring its neck whenever wringing its neck is the right thing to do. So those you've worked with, kind of the Rubens Barrichello type, you obviously you race-engineered him, uh, him certainly in his first season and maybe second, I can't remember when you stopped, stopped doing that, but he... You've spoken of him of just giving very good, concise, to the point feedback and not drifting beyond his brief, shall we say? Yeah, uh, true. Uh, there's two drivers really I'd, I'd bring on here as the best I've ever worked with, uh, and they're both Brazilian. One was Roberto Moreno, uh, and one was Rubens Barrichello. Um, not, I'm, I'm, I've never really worked. I'm discounting Michael Schumacher here because I never really worked with him long enough. But those two drivers, they're drivers that you could do exactly what I'm talking about. Um, it would give you feedback, you know, back in the in the Roberto days, it was the, um, the Pelter radio. You had to plug it in when the driver came in at the pits and have a chat about it. But Roberto could give you the feedback you needed, um, understand the changes you were making and the reasons for it, and and work with it. And, and Rubens was exactly the same. Better radio system. So we got to a point where Rubens was able to... Um, tell me what was going on with the car when he was coming in the pit lane. And if I didn't have what I classified as a, a solution to put to him, by the time the car was parked in the garage, I felt I wasn't doing my job. It wasn't one of these things where we'll plug it in and get the data in and run off and see what we can see. His feedback was him in the car. He knew what he wanted. Um, and 
I was good enough, I think, and, and confident enough to come up with solutions, you know, off the cuff to to rectify problems. Didn't always get it right by any means. Nobody does, but you don't get it always right with the data. But again, Roberto and Rubens were both drivers that were very talented. They were fingertip drivers. You know, they weren't somebody that's holding on by the scruff of the neck. It was fingertip driving. So they're always easy what they were doing. They're always comfortable what they were doing. They're always able to feel what they were doing. And that's that was really important. And Moreno, of course, who engineered to the F3000 title in uh, in 88, as well as he briefly turned up at Jordan as well. Uh, but you've mentioned one kind of sort of bad engineering driver, one who is too much of an engineer. But is there the other end of the scale as well, when sometimes you get these drivers who... People, sometimes you'll you'll say to someone, well, where's that driver got that pace from? And they'll say, well, he's got no idea. It's it's like he's quick, but he doesn't know why. And there's always the, that's kind of that fundamental underlying ability. You have to have that, but you also need to understand how you're generating that if you're really going to break through. So do you, do you get drivers who are genuinely just baffled by it, don't really understand what they're trying to achieve, what they're doing at any one time, and just have you tearing your hair out as an engineer because they're, they're just too un, unengaged or incapable of of really getting it. Yeah, yeah, you do. Um, you get lots of them. The thing is about any circuit, there's you know there's X amount of corners on the track, um, and and let's say you know the car's not bad in all of them, but you've got to recognise where the car's good at and where the car's bad at. You've got to then work with your engineer and the driver together to address the situation as to the reasons the car is good in one, bad in the other, and the fact that you might not be able to do make the car good in all of them. But what you, So what you've got to try and do then is, is make sure the driver recognises the corners that he's that he's got a good car in and that he's doing well in. You know, you, you can't make up time in a corner where you're quick to begin with in. You can make up a little bit, but you can't make it all up there. So I think it was Ayrton Senna who was always very good at, at this, and he used to help Rubens quite a bit trying to explain to him not to try harder where you're already good at you know where you have to put your effort in is changing lines or changing the car for the for the corners that you're that's not good um so don't just treat this the 16 corners or whatever as on a lap as a as a red blur every lap every lap you know put the ones to bed that you know are good just be consistent there and then it's the other corners you experiment and, and set up changes and whatever so a lot of drivers that don't know where the lap time came from or where it's gone to, are ones that just drive every lap, you know, in a mist, a red mist, just trying to go faster everywhere. Whenever you just you just can't do that. So you gain a bit in one corner and lose a bit in another. You just need to have that feeling, that that knowledge of, of where things are good at. And you've also got to have that little bit of time in the bag. One of the drivers, you know, Fisichella was a very good driver as well. The reason I didn't put him in there with... with um, Moreno or, or Barrichello is that he was never consistent enough. You know, you can never just say, feel that it was always going to be there. It's always something would pop up or something would happen. But he was very, very good. Um, but, you know, he he just was one of those sort of drivers that he, he just, as I say, he just never was that consistent about stuff. He, he, you know, you couldn't rely on him every day of every week. And I think you saw that with Benetton and wherever he drove. It never quite happened correctly. I think he suited a, a small team better than he suited a big team as well. Um, but I think consistency is very important, and, and that you know that's where physicality drops down. It's an interesting modern example, actually, with 
uh, a driver who struggled with that compromise, Pierre Gasly. I know when he was at Red Bull, they were a bit frustrated because he'd go out and he'd say, oh, well, I want to get the car working better in turn five and then suddenly make a change and suddenly turn nine's gone and then you're you're kind of rather than seeing that whole compromise. So you've got a very uh, adept, very quick driver, but just struggling a bit to to deal with that. Um, looking at the, the driver-engineer communication, we talked about the kind of driver input to the engineer. How about the, the race engineer's interaction with the, the rest of the team? And I guess when you were technical director and race engineer, it's quite easy to do that because uh, it's all, all going into the same place. But now, and as teams grew, there was a lot more need to have communication. So it can't just be the race engineer who has in his own head what's going on. That needs to feed back into the team development. Are all these things, whether it's a longer-term thing or a shorter-term thing, of getting the best out of the car. So how, how challenging is that? It's very challenging. And what you've got to make sure is that, that what you've got, what the car is set up like, or supposed to be set up like, is actually really what it's set up like. You have to have a lot of confidence in a lot of people, um, and you have got to have a lot of procedures in place that make sure that, you know, what you think you got, you got. Um, it's so easy for things to be slightly different. You know, we've got so many different setup parameters now on the cars, you know, of, of preloads and, and gaps or packer gaps or whatever, you know. Um, that you could be out by a little bit here or there, and it would be it would affect the car dramatically. And if you don't know that, you know it's it's it just leads you up a garden path somewhere. So mistakes you have to try and eliminate them, and so you have to try to be part of that package that creates a system that allows the people who set the car up and the engineers to work closely enough together to eliminate as much of that as possible. There's no point in coming up with this big you know setup sheet strategy. And giving it to somebody who who knows more about actually putting the car together than you do, and expecting them to react and and do to react to it and do what you want, you have to work with them to create a, a situation and a system that works for both. That you get what you want and they can do what you want, uh, and that's so that's a close relationship as well, a very very close relationship. And, and you know, to be honest, maybe even more important than the driver, because those are the things that can let you down. And they're the random things that can let you down from one day to another. Um, the driver will normally be the driver. He will normally be the same day in, day out. But if you've got too complicated a setup procedure, then it can affect you and, and affect the car dramatically. And you don't know about it until it's too late. If you drive around for a practice session with the wrong rear anti-roll bar in the car, for example, um, or a different rear anti-roll bar than, than you thought you had, you've just wasted your time. Because you know you'll change it to what the one should have been that was in the car. Actually, didn't make any difference. But you've had the wrong one, and while you're trying to get your head around everything that was going on, so consistency and making sure everything's done right is important, and that relationship's critical. We often hear a lot of in-race communications now and during practice sessions, qualifying. How big a part of the race engineer's job is it to engineer the driver when they're on track, and how difficult is it? is it to do that and I guess it's off track as well in terms of getting them in the right the right headspace so this is kind of the the engineer's input to the driver sometimes it almost like they have to be a psychologist a sort of sports psychologist as well as the person trying to make the car go go quicker complicated job it is a complicated job and the thing that, that um I'm surprised that we don't hear more of it because you know the the driver has input from one car normally one car the thing he's driving there may be cars around him so he can get input as to whether they're faster than him or slower than him but the race engineer has input from, you know, 20 cars. And he can look at all 20 cars, including his own, 
in the same environment from his point of view, being on the pit wall or whatever simulation tools they've got. So they can watch the trend in lap time going up and down relative to tyre degradation or whatever fuel loads changing or whatever it be, conditions. So I'm surprised we don't hear more about the comparison to other people um, that your car is doing as the race progresses or develops. Because it's, it's very easy to just, the driver to you know moan and groan about everything he's got being bad. But the reality of it is everybody's suffering some sort of consequences. If every other car in the pit lane is, is you know starting to go a tenth of a second per lap faster than you, and two tenths the next lap, three tenths the lap after, you've got a problem. But if everybody's you know getting faster uh, or getting slower, then the conditions are changing somehow, or the tires are changing, or something's changing. So you're only as good relative to the other people. Nothing to do with what you're doing or how fast you're going. You know, you could have the the fastest car that you've ever driven in your life and still be slower than everybody else because they've just got a better car. So it's only, you know, your your speed and your performance is only relative to to others. Nothing to do with you, you know. If, you, if you're a second off the pace and you're just told, well, you're a second slower than everybody else and you go out and find a second, then you're not trying hard enough to begin with. You should be right on your limit and that's your pace. And then it's up to everybody else to be either better or worse than you. So you need to use your engineer more, I think, nowadays um, than what I see happening in the race. Sometimes we'll hear messages which are kind of versions of just get on with it, stop complaining. Sometimes they're sort of coded, more delicately put. But uh, did you have cases where you just felt the driver was just getting wound up about something and, you know, something happened, they get annoyed, they need to vent it, but that can then get into a bit of a spiral of obsessing about it. Did you have times when you were race engineering when you just had to get on the road and just said, right, just, just shut up and get on with it and just try and get them back into the zone? Or even when it's technical director, when you weren't race engineering, had to intervene and just say, look, come on, pay attention. Um, you're t- not talking about currently about Gunter Steiner, are you? The way he, the way he might say something. Well, he's he's got a very good uh, good direct way with with uh, as we have heard him come on the radio. But sometimes you do hear it, don't you? Like if there's a bit of a debate going on, you might get someone senior. We've heard James Vowles on the uh, Mercedes Pitwall strategy head come over on on the radio. I remember Bahrain 2014 when Rosberg and Hamilton were were having the battle. Paddy Lowe came up on the radio and just tried to calm the situation down. So yeah, yeah, and then Steiner's another another example. So you do hear these sometimes. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm glad that the radio communication wasn't um, as good uh, years ago and we didn't hear much on TV. But, you know, I have been known to say to the driver that it's time to get on with it or, you know, it's, it's, it's a difficult thing, isn't it? Because you have to have a longer, a, a longer ongoing relationship than that one snapshot in time. So it depends on the driver as to whether or not you can say what you feel or whether you have to sort of bite your tongue a little bit. Um, I've never been known for sort of biting my tongue, I suppose, really. But at the end of the day, I still still have to have a working relationship for over a season with people. And, you know, the drivers, whether you like it or not, that we used to have, they always come with more... Um, yeah, they weren't really, you know, employed by our team as such. They came with money. Most of the drivers came with money. And when a driver does that, it's a very different environment from you going out, employing a driver, paying him a wage, sticking him in your car, and having that working relationship. So... You have to respect that a little bit, a bit thing. But you know, Gunter Steiner's in an NBL position where that's what they do with their drivers. They're they're paid. They're in the car. They're they're just an employee. They're working for them, so he can say what he wants to. But sometimes I have to be a little bit more reserved with that and try to put it forward that well, I understand your your problems. I understand your frustrations. But this is where we are. So come on, 
you know, let's just get on and do the best we can. Um, so again, it's a, it's a, depends on your driver, depends on the budget, depends on the team, depends on lots of stuff, whether you can be aggressive with your comments or whether you have to be a bit more uh, political. And, and you do see this. You see, you know, good race engineers have a great relationship with one driver, but not others. And sometimes it takes the right engineer to get the best out of the driver, I guess. A great example is Felipe Massa, who struggled in his first, his early races with Ferrari, but then they switched Rob Smedley in, uh, a former Jordan uh, man, Rob Smedley, of course, to become a uh, race engineer for, for Massa. And then that created this really, really great relationship between the two, where Rob always seemed to know when he needed to, to kind of fire Felipe Massa up and when he needed to give him the feedback to, to improve. The famous one is when he... Um, gave Massa some coaching on uh, Sandovot at, at Monaco. So, look, you can carry more speed through there. And then Massa got pole, basically thanks to a combination of the ability he had there and Smedley's ability to recognise that there was potential in that corner and how to get it out of uh, Felipe Massa. So you do get a certain, I guess with anything, any working relationship, you need that kind of a sort of connection and a way of understanding how you each speak. And it actually varies from person to person. Yeah, it varies from person to person. And it also varies if you if you know what the driver can do you know every driver will have a a problem somewhere like Felipe Massa at Sandvoort you know he, he's not doing it to the best of his ability and Rob's obviously pretty good at recognizing a driver's ability to to achieve something because he's, he's done it somewhere else you know Sandvoort's just one corner on one on one track so he's got information and data of how he would have went about braking and, and whatever uh, at other tracks at other corners and trying to sort of influence that against also putting it against his teammate um who was pretty quick at that point in time as well um you know you can compare against that and you can say look you know here 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 and here you were as good as him but here you're not so you're obviously missing someone here so what what is it and trying to drag out a mass of what the problem is if it's mental if it's you know one of the things that i think whenever uh barrichello and Irvine were driving for us. You know, Rubens was always one of these guys. He carried corner speed, um, fingertip control as such. And Eddie was more of the white knuckle guy. And many, many, many times Eddie's comment would be, you know, I can brake later than the car. And you sort of say, well, yeah, okay, but, you know, you have to try to brake the car. You have to try to use the two together, which is what Rubens was, was good at, getting the best out of what he had. Now, no doubt Eddie was brave and, you know, he could stand on the brakes late in the corner. And, but then the car just, you know, it, it was it was lost. It was, you know, not sure which way to turn anymore because it was just all too late. So sometimes you have to back out of it a little bit to get the best out of it. And that's the same with, with Massa at Sandevote. Just a matter of highlighting to him what he can do, whether it's breaking later or whether it's actually breaking earlier and going in more in control. There's, there's always a way to look at it. And Rob was very good, I think, at making mass understand that it's not just about being let's say brave or or trying to be you know mr nice guy with a car you have to get that right line and comparing it to your teammate and comparing it to things you've done before you can you can probably find that well let's look at current drivers in f1 if you had the chance to work with any of them as a race engineer right now which one would you choose and i'm thinking from a technical perspective not just purely from from who's the quickest from what you've heard who would be the the best in terms of you being able to get the best out of them, them being able to give you what you need to get the best out of the car? Um, just quickly off the top, top of my head, uh, off the cuff, there's probably two drivers that I think are slightly different in what their their ability is, or not ability, what their projection, projectile, projection is in their, in, their, uh, in their career. One's Max Verstappen, who I think 
it just takes out of the car everything and can do it. And, and you know, he's, he's very, very quick. And the other is probably George Russell at being a driver with a huge potential that hasn't quite been recognized yet. And I suppose I was going to pick one of the two of them, it would be George Russell, because I just feel that he has a lot of a lot of talent. He's more of the Barrichello type driver, you know, more of the relaxed fingertip type driver. Um, so it, it means that you've you know you you've got a lot of potential for the future with him. He's he's young, he's new, as such. You know, Max is very quick and all that sort of stuff. But um, George would be one of those drivers where I would um, like to, if I could, I would like to have sort of seen him through a bit of his career to try and build it up a little bit. Now, that doesn't mean that you know there's anything wrong with anybody else and 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 it all. It's just how you see drivers and their opportunity. At the minute, he's he's had a hard time with his Williams deal, but when he gets in the Mercedes, he does a good job. And I'd relate that back a little bit to whenever I was going to all the races with um, with the BBC and stuff um, and with Form. You know, watching uh, Nico Rosberg and, and Lewis Hamilton in the in the Mercedes at that point in time. There's, there's two different drivers as well there. Now, you can have a driver like Lewis who, <clears throat> Lewis leaves the car alone. He lets the car do its thing a bit. You know, again, this is my fingertip driver. Cars will always be on the move doing stuff. And you have to have confidence to let the car fix itself to a certain extent. Whereas Rosberg was always fixing the, the car. It always was, everything was always a reaction from the driver. And sometimes you can inflict a lot of problems into the car as far as you know what the car is actually doing isn't necessarily the car doing it you're you're inflicting it because you're reacting to a little situation with the car the rear of it just moves a little bit lewis would let it alone knowing that it hasn't moved that much and it'll probably be all right probably i say but you know you never know whereas nico would would react to that so the car would instead of having one little nervous movement it would probably have three or four because it's reacting to has a steering input and pedal input that's changing the car slightly so drivers like that, I think, you know, that's where you pick a good driver or you pick a driver that you want to work with. I like the ones that leave the car alone and let it do its thing. Um, and I think George Russell is probably one of those drivers who will always, you know, he'll it, it, be comfortable with the car because he's comfortable with it all happening around him and all the speed and stuff. And I think for the future, he's a, got huge potential. Yeah, that's a very, very interesting choice. He's, a, he's certainly a, a thinking driver and, uh, yeah, interesting to see how he gets on hopefully with a car that you can actually go racing in a bit more uh, well thanks very much for your for your insight gary we could probably talk about race engineering for another three hours we may well uh, come back to it uh, to, to it another day but hopefully people have got a bit of an idea of what's involved with a race engineer driver relationship uh, so thanks very much for listening we'll be back next week with another episode of the gary anderson f1 show 